Welcome to episode 26 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your co-host, Mary, joined by my awesome co-host. Tonight, he is St. Darren Teen, also known as Darren Wheat. Good evening. Actually, good morning to those listeners. And you are in a very jovial mood today. Very jovial mood, giggling through the intro. The intro you spent (laughs) obviously a lot of time preparing for, by the way. I said I was going to do the typical Mare intro. I just I... like, wow, is that Shakespeare? <laughs> Fucker. But anyway, so how are you? Welcome. Good. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's a yeah. cold, miserable New England night. It's snowing. It's cold. It's dark. It's everything. Welcome know? to Canada. Exactly. But you know what, though? We will try to warm the spirits tonight wow. as we talk about Valentine's Day. We will. That is coming up here. And people don't realize that Valentine's Day is not exactly a new holiday. It goes back a long, long, long time. Mm-hmm. We will talk about it, some of its originations. We will talk about, for purposes of our podcast, how it affects the Civil War. And then maybe, just maybe, we're going to have some dating profiles of some of our favorite generals mm-hmm. to talk about as if they were on the scene today looking to find themselves yep. some Valentine's <laughs> love, Mary. <laughs> And we are at episode 26. So we are at the half year mark with this. Our six month anniversary is the 22nd of this month. It feels like a hundred. Already? Yeah, I know that feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me about it. Oh, God. So before we go up. any further, I, our listeners now know we're doing dry February. What seltzer water are you drinking tonight? Oh, nothing but the best for me. Store brand lemon seltzer from Stop and Shop. The good stuff is a buck, a, buck, a, a buck 99 at the old Stop and Shop. Man. I almost thought you said Stonewall Jackson lemon. It's colorized if you can see it, but this is the stuff you actually would have drank. <laughs> I may get stuck in a tree later. We'll see. Yeah. And you're drinking out of your Lincoln mug tonight? Drinking out of my Lincoln mug tonight because when you think of Valentine's Day, you got to think of Lincoln. <laughs> oh, go, we'll go with it. Tell about yourself. Blackberry seltzer water, which is actually quite good. And I am drinking it out of my John Reynolds mug because he's going to figure into our podcast tonight. We have a very interesting story. I was to tell thinking about him. maybe Blackberry because you were talking about the Black Hawk War in the live last week. I thought maybe that was your connection you were going. Do you there. mean the Black Hawk War? Go big or go home. <laughs> there, I did it. I got it. You did it. You, you did a great <laughs> well, job. Well, usually within it. about 30 seconds, we're at the E rating. Yeah, well, there you go. And that's so, not E for everybody. That's E for explicit. Once again, parents, we're sorry. Anyway. So. This explicit rating brought to you by Canada. As you as always. As you as and always. Joe Trudeau. And Joe Trudeau? What? Okay. Don't you remember when, when uh, what's his name? Trump's press secretary, the first one, called Trudeau Joe Trudeau. Oh, yeah, yeah. We made such a joke of it up here in Canada. Yeah, well, let's edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, on back on topic. So anyway, we were talking about Valentine's Day, and we were doing all the updating and studying for this. It reminds me a lot of our Christmas episode, because Mm -hmm. it's very similar in a lot of different ways. Now, before we go into the Civil War, we got to talk a little bit about Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, and it's surprising, people don't always know this, but it goes all the way back to the Middle Ages, right? Some people trace it back to the festival of Lupercalia in Rome, whatever that is, which was held on February 15th. There is no connection, Mary, between St. Valentine and romance. None. Okay, which sounds a lot like the connection between Darren in romance in high school, if you want to go think about it. <laughs> well, the and, same with Mary in romance <laughs> in high school. Okay. But all serious, though, Val- St. Valentine, there was no connection between angels and cupids and candy and all that. It was it was something that, was, that totally came along later. But regardless, Valentine's Day has been celebrated for centuries and centuries. Valentine's Day cards are almost just as old. They became quite popular in the 1700s. They were basically handwritten notes on basic pieces of paper, kind of like the ones you hold up in the live sometimes, basically. Those Valentine's ones you show But I everybody. bet they didn't say fucker. No, probably not. Oh, wait, unless they were a vinegar Valentine, which we will get to in this we'll episode. We'll talk to that, and there's another E for the other. That's explicit right there. So as time goes on, 1828, Sir Walter Scott, he wrote that story, The Fair Maid of Perth, Valentine's Day, where they declared February 14th a day dedicated to romance. I need a good Barry White voice to say that. But the, but the Barry Val- White music in the background. Hey, <laughs> we're going to tie a bow under this one. Hey. <laughs> so anyway, you hear the phrase, you know, Hallmark holiday. And that's exactly what this is. Valentine's Day was really marketed in the 1820s in the United States and England. It grew in popularity throughout the mid-1800s. Postal rates became standardized. That helped people mail Valentine's Day cards. They were basically just 
flat paper with color drawings on it. There was no Snoopy or anything that we, I, we could tell or anything like that. And they were sealed in wax. They were mailed and it was fun to get. Really in the United States is when it really took off here in, of all places, New England, as mm-hmm. usual. Thing, all the good stuff starts up here. So an English Valentine card was sent to a woman in Massachusetts in 1846 by the name of Esther Howland. She was a student at nearby Mount Holyoke College in South Dudley, Mass, which is way out west of Massachusetts, almost almost on the New York border. And she decided to become very smart and mass produced all these cards. And so around 1850 or so, her father was a paper stationer, I guess the phrase was. Mm-hmm. Yep. Worcester, Mass became the Valentine's capital of America. And if you've been to Worcester, Mass lately, you will be stunned to hear that. She um, forms the New England Valentine Company and she has her and a bunch of women on this kind of assembly line in her house making these Valentine's cards. She made between $25,000 and $75,000 a year doing this until she sold it in 1888 to a competitor. That's a lot of money. It is. And the other thing about Valentine's Day too is the one thing you always hear is today, how commercialized it is. In the 1860s during the Civil War, it is very much commercialized just like it is now. There was advertisements running, running in the paper Paper alongside casualty lists it was and you know it was funny up around that time heading into the civil war what you just said about the commercialization how it was mm-hmm. aggravating even back then they knew the new york times actually back in february 14th ironically of 1856 probably not ironic that's why they ran it but they ran an editorial bashing the entire industry mm-hmm. and they, they wrote our bows and bells are satisfied with a few miserable lines neatly written on fine paper or else they purchased a printed Valentine's Day card with verses ready-made, some of which are costly and many are cheap and indecent. So right off the bat, they're already saying this is this this industry is garbage. Mm-hmm. But again, we talk about as we head into the Civil War, it was a very popular holiday. These yep. cards are really starting to go crazy. As these soldiers were going away to war and people were at home, you can see exactly where this is going around Valentine's Day. Well, yeah, it's a way to communicate just like it was with Christmas cards, right? Like it's a way to boost morale. That's what some companies really tried to sell women on was, hey, make sure you send this to your sweetheart. And like there was two different companies. There was the New York American Valentine Company as well as the Shillingtons in D.C. And both of them sold these kind of Valentine Day packets. Now, the New York American Valentine's Company promoted soldiers' Valentine's packets, army Valentine's packets, and torch of love packets. That sounds Ooh. like something A.P. Hill would get. <laughs> torch, yeah, burn. <laughs> torch of love. Was a, you know. And these are deliberately marketed towards women. The New York Valentine Company said, don't forget your soldier lovers. Keep their courage up with a rousing Valentine. <laughs> I mean, they were marketing back then. I mean, February of 1861, which is between Secession and Sumter, there was a newspaper out of Leavenworth, Kansas, of all places. And, and they were marketing already this stuff. They were, the war wasn't even there yet, and they were already marketing. Most readers are probably aware that Valentine's Day occurs on the 14th of February. The artful archer, Cupid, will be in his glory filling his quiver with missiles of lovely warfare. So right off the bat, that hasn't even started yet, and they're already marketing this upcoming war for these cards. So give credit to somebody. It's just as cheesy as it back then as it was now there was holmes county farmer newspaper in ohio that said um wrote on february 11th 1864 we are reminded that valentine's day is approaching tuesday next the 14th it is set aside as the carnival of lovers it is said the birds choose their mates on that day and it being a leap year it is expected that all marriageable girls will select their mates well there you go that's illegal in most states now by the way (laughs) in case you're curious about that thing. Just like today, it's very heavily commercial. It is. But you know what, though? You go back to the actual soldiers now who are talking specifically about the, the guys in the field. They obviously had to make their own cards. Yeah, I mean, they these, I mean, they made their own cards. And and, and you, you start to read some of, the, some of the diaries of these folks about some of the stuff they wrote to these, mm-hmm. some of these people in their cards. Private Joseph Morris, he was a member of the Georgia Cavalry. He wrote to his paramour, Sylvani Bremont of Standardsville, Virginia good stuff when you're talking about old Sylvani Bromont here. But he wrote, moments appear days to me in a day and age of misery and woe. When I cannot behold your beloved face, why have we passion? If upon the first development of their genuine tenderness, they will be curbed and checked by the arbitrary rules of war. So right off the bat, you can see already what's going on with this. These guys are starting to realize, okay, I joined this army. 
mm-hmm. I'm going to be separated from my girlfriend, wife, boyfriend, whatever you want to call it. You start to see the the longing. We talked like at the Christmas episode on this, yep. right? I think the reality of a lot of these people of this camp life, you know, was something. The South, you know, was having a tougher time with it just because, I mean, I hate to read all these quotes here, but I got another quote for you, Mary. Richmond Whig on February 9th, 1864. And what they're talking about is they're saying, although public attention should be diverted from levity, whilst the alarms of war be are heard at our very doors, we believe a large number of Valentines will pass through the post office on February 14th. So what they're saying basically is a lot of shit's going down but people are still going to be sitting on their Valentines. And so I think that was that way that connection they had to have. Yeah, it was a way of boosting morale of staying connected with those people. Much like, you know, again, it goes back to our Christmas episode where we're in, it's not the same situation, but we're in a situation where some of us are separated from our loved ones, like in Valentine's Day or whatever, and can't see them. So you have to come up with other ways to communicate with them or spend time with them or whatever. And that's how they were doing the Civil War. They're marketing towards women to send these valentines not just to tell your boyfriend or whatever that you know you love them but it's nice to get something unlike christmas which is a, was a really a secular holiday at the time yeah. this one was more marketed oh right? absolutely yeah i mean christmas was more of a solemn thing it was yeah. cold you, you know it's it's christmas time you miss your family this was more geared not for the kids this was for the for the paramour right yeah, exactly i mean even back then whoever did these this idea had to have been the guy whose relatives created the lifetime channel i'll tell you that right now because <laughs> che- i have never ever seen <laughs> right? it the sheer cheesery of the stuff they did i mean you're basically marketing to these poor dudes in camp yeah and these poor women to have some of these some of these salacious at times messages back and forth I've never seen, you know, you see a lot of soldier diaries and you see a lot of letters. You don't see too many soldier valentines. We'll talk about one here in a little while, but mm-hmm. one we, a couple we did find. But it is interesting, though, you know, as we talk about this. And I think a lot of people, for whatever reason, would probably be surprised that Valentine's Day in 1862 was basically the same as 2021. Exactly. Right? There's that. And, and too, even today, there's that pressure to get something for your significant other for Valentine's Day. Like if you don't, you're a dick or a bitch or whatever. Well, like, we talked a couple of weeks ago when John Wilkes Booth is sitting with, with his sister Asia. Yeah. And he's writing a Valentine's Day to Lucy Hale. And he has him all night to write it because he can't do it. I mean, that's how that's serious business back mm-hmm. then still. Because God forbid you buy the wrong car or the wrong thing on a holiday yeah, like that. Don't that bring that, home flowers know, or something like that. Or, or something like that. You know what I mean? But it's funny how the mentality is really the same. It is. You know, yeah. so again, people, the war wasn't that long ago, but it's interesting. You could almost see these soldiers all standing around coming up with ideas the way guys stand around the card thing at the supermarket you can almost see them it is just pretty funny to do i think the separation from your loved one is the biggest obvious difference between now and then you could pick up a phone you can send a message you can do all kinds of things now yeah exactly. back then you send a valentine that you wrote kind of like the ones you got when you're like the third grade every kid has to get one <laughs> god i had right? panic attacks over that because oh. i would worry that like Oh, am I giving this card to the right person? Oh, I could see that. Yeah, exactly. Will you be a dear fucker? Yeah, <laughs> dear fucker. <laughs> you know, In grade but, but six, si- I had Jurassic Park Valentine's that I gave out to my entire class. Except the real dinosaurs, though, because it was a long time ago. You probably, you know. Fucker. <laughs> zip but it. We, but, uh, zip it. But, but, you know, as we talk about this, the, the one that does come out, though, is there are some really, really good love stories that come out of this. Yeah. And we're going to talk about a couple. And so a couple of them right now. Well, I was going to say before we get to that, we have Vinegar Valentine's, though. Oh, for, oh God, I can't forget about Vinegar Valentine's. Not to You're cut you off. I'm that. sorry. Oh, no, no. You never do that. <laughs> Fucker. Half of all Valentine's sales, well, in the 19th and early 20th century, were vinegar valentines, which basically were a way of throwing shade anonymously. And you could throw, you could, you know, insult the someone's grooming habits, their moral choices, like their profession, whatever you wanted. So they would slam army surgeons. And this one card that I found said, ho, ho, old sawbones. Here you come. You're always ready with your traps to mangle, saw, and hack us. They dig pretty deep, like some of these cards that are insulting. There was one called the Bull Runner, which was a deserter fleeing from battle. And then there was one called the Private, which was a really grumpy looking soldier, which could very well. They also call that Bull Runner the O.L. Howard, you know, just saying. Go ahead. Continue. 
There was one called the private, which was a really grumpy looking soldier, which could have described me last week. <laughs> Darren's is nothing. Let's go. And the caption on that card said, as you pace your, your lone rounds in the wilds of Secessia, my dear little hearts forever will bless you. And when the war is over, if you so incline, you may take me and make me your own Valentine. So there's a little bit of like love in that, but there's also a little bit of like, haha, you suck because of where you are kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you got to give them credit. I mean, they, I think they have to find entertainment any way they possibly can. Yeah, and this was I, a know. very socially sanctioned thing that happened. Criticizing and insulting people on Valentine's Day was also a very popular tradition as much as it was to tell somebody that you love them too. And like I said, it's estimated that half of all sales were made up of these vinegar Valentine cards. And it was a tradition that continued into the early 20th century as well. That's basically so. the gag gifts of today. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. You know? Yeah. So yes, I'm very sorry to interrupt you. Oh, well, listen, okay. But just so you know, not every relationship in the Civil War was a vinegar Valentine. There were some really touching ones. And considering this Valentine's Day, we thought we'd touch on a couple of them. Now, one that I think a lot of people have heard about is the romance between John Reynolds and Kate Hewitt. I know we've talked about this many, many times. So take over. You're going to sit back and let you tell the story. <laughs> so the story of John Reynolds and Kate Hewitt is pretty well known in the Civil War. And there's actually been some research done on it recently that has shed new light in particular on Kate Hewitt, which is really, really awesome. The research that has been done that has kind of changed the story a little bit. So John met Kate while he was traveling from San Francisco to Philadelphia in 1860. Fell in love pretty quickly. The relationship was kept secret probably because of religion. Reynolds was a Protestant and Kate was just converting to Catholicism. And back then Catholics were still heavily persecuted. I th just think they wanted to, to keep it quiet. And plus the war at this time is like, they know it's coming, right? They are engaged on September 15th, 1861. And she took his West Point ring, which she used to imprint the wax seals on the letters she would send him. And he wore a Catholic religious medal around his neck, which was a gold ring joined in the shape of clasped hands. And it said, dear Kate, just on the inner band. He visits her very briefly in the winter of 1863. And they decided at that point that they were going to announce their engagement to their families on July the 8th, 1863. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we all know what happened on July yeah. 1st, 1863. Yeah. With that. So John Reynolds is not to give away the story, but he, uh, he doesn't make it. You know, he gets killed in Gettysburg down by the Herbst Woods. And it's, it's, it's obviously it's a very sad thing. And no one knows the romance between him and Kate. They make a vow where if, if he's to be killed in battle, she agrees that she's going to join a convent if she's killed in battle, which is it's quite a commitment right there. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, as everybody knows, he's killed on the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. A Sergeant Vale is the one who tells Kate of John's death in his last moments. And the story is, you know, these leading the black hats at Herb's Woods, killed instantly, shot in the back of the head and, and mm. knocked off his horse. And that was pretty much it for, for him. You know, Kate's obviously upset. She she asks if John had any last final messages for her. And he's like, oh, nope, you know, he didn't, didn't say much. And she actually, at that point, she's going to give Vale a handmade handkerchief that she had made. Um, half of the would be supposed to be made for John because why else would she have it? Yeah as a remembrance of both of them. And it's something that he held on to. She will, to her word, enter that convent. So she moves on to a convent in Edmundsburg, Maryland, which is about 10 minutes from Gettysburg. But as history goes on, she doesn't stay forever in that convent. She, she does move on. No, she does. And she does have a relationship with his family, particularly with his sister, Ellie. It was on July 3rd that she went to one of his sister's houses where John was before he was being transferred back home to Lancaster. And it said that, you know, she sat with his body for quite a while. At times she wept uncontrollably, but she ends up placing his West Point ring in the coffin and she takes back her, her medal. As you said, Darren, she does enter that convent in Emmitsburg where she takes the name of Sister Hildegard. She ends up leaving the convent though on September 3rd, 1868. And she goes back to Albany, New York. She goes back to New York. History kind of loses her a little bit. She comes back here in a little bit, but she ultimately ends up getting married. Yep. She ends up getting married to a guy named Joseph Ford with a P, P-F-O-R-T-D, uh, in 1874. She never completed all her vows at the 
at the uh, convent so she gets married and she basically ends up living up there and she dies of tuberculosis just a couple of years later so she, about two years later she dies mm-hmm. and she ends up being buried up there really in, in our mark grave is where she really gets buried and there's questions about where she was buried or when she died it was that one story that she lived until 1902 and just judge everything down she did get married and did get buried with with joseph she did ultimately get married and i think yeah. a lot of people you hear a lot of the stories about about um about Kate Hewitt that she never remarried, but she certainly did. And it took a while and she did, you know, she did live up to her promise to John. But again, at some point it just it just didn't take and she didn't yeah. move on. Yeah. And who knows if that was part if that was really part of their engagement or not, because so much does get lost in history, right? It could have just been one of those like reading between the lines things. For years it was believed that she had not got married and that she was this Kate Hewitt who was buried in Stillwater, New York. It has since been discovered very, very recently, like I think in the last year and a half, that that's not John's Kate Hewitt. John's Kate Hewitt was buried in Albany, New York and and had got married. Um, after John died. There's actually a really good YouTube video about this. It's from, is it National Civil War Museum? Am I getting that right? Yeah, the way it was Wayne Mott's Museum in Harrisburg. Yeah, yeah, Wayne Mott's. And then he's interviewing Jeff Harding, who is a licensed battlefield guide. And he was the one that discovered this with the help of one of his researchers about Kate Hewitt. So the story has changed. And it's really like, I just found it so fascinating, the research they did. There, I do have a quote to read about Kate from John's sister, Ellie. She wrote of Kate, poor girl has been a heroic mourner and most worthy of our dear one. I cannot tell you all she said of him, but she was in, in his heart. And from her, I learned much of him, of his feelings and inner life that I never knew before. She made no parade of her religion, nor in any way that was least disagreeable. So they did grow quite close with her. Now they don't keep in contact with her. I think there's a point where they, they don't have any contact with her at all. But this is something, you know, like, because they got to know her, they got to know a little bit more of their brother which I think is is pretty cool too. But it's still like, it's one of those sad stories of the Civil War and you wonder what could have been, but you know, at least she was able to find somebody. It's interesting how they kept it secret and kept it quiet. Yeah. His right. men had he, no he idea. Found the necklace on his thing. It yeah. must be one of those old, those clatterings you see with the hands. You see those sometimes, the yeah. Irish ones. Yeah. But that must have been quite a surprise. I mean, unfortunately, you know, they, for whatever reason, they chose to keep it quiet. But it's sad. I mean, these, these stories are sad when you really get into them. You think mm-hmm. about people's own lives and stuff like that. You don't think about significant others going off to work for the day that something like that's going to happen. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And chances are the other one's not going to enter a convent if it does. <laughs> Realistically, <laughs> I mean, just to be honest, you know. <laughs> You know, most of my friends will be at the bar three hours later, unfortunately. <laughs> but this is a real story where I think a lot of people have a, a notion of, of yes, he, but she never got married. She went off to become a convent. And, and she did her thing and she lived the life she could. But it had to, had to, I mean, obviously, needless to say, that, that that's, a, that's a hard story to go through. It is, and, yeah. And you know what? For every John Reynolds, there's a thousand like that. John yeah. Reynolds, we know because it's John Reynolds, but... You yeah, McPherson's was very similar too, James McPherson. You know, but how many husbands and brothers and fathers went off to war and never came back? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so it's so you can imagine just the the heartbreak, and especially yeah. around you're engaged and you're you're starting your life together, and that this this horrible war comes, and you know, and then you 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 think you know you just get through it the best way you can. But the fact they had a vow that you know allegedly anyway, yeah, if I die, this is what's going to happen. So yeah. you know that, that that's the faith, that's the reality that all these guys faced. Yeah. And just to what was really sad about the story is the fact that they were going to tell their families on July the 8th. Like that's the heartbreaking part of it. It's kind of like McPherson yeah. when he went to ask for leave from Sherman so he could go marry his fiance and Sherman said no because of the Battle yeah. of Atlanta. Didn't work out for old Burbs either, <laughs> unfortunately. Not. So Reynolds, we talked about it's a sad story. So I'm going to tell another story. This is a story about a couple named James Love, ironically, and a woman named Eliza Molly Wilson. Now, this is a story that's interesting because this is one that actually was discovered about 10 years ago at the Missouri Museum of History. And and it was basically released. There were a bunch of letters they found that these guys were writing back and forth. The letters that James was writing Molly, they're the ones that survived. Whatever she wrote back to him, they're gone. So no one knows. But you can kind of tell by reading what he wrote, basically what they were talking about. And this, they're an interesting couple, though, because they're both born in Ireland, kind of like your boy Claiborne. James Love, he's born in 1830 in the town of Bushmills, which I don't know if you know this, Mary. It's famous for their whiskey. Okay? Oh, being from Bushmill Ireland? Whiskey. Exactly. 
on the northern far east on the northern shore of Ireland. And he emigrated here to the U.S. in 1839. He got to St. Louis in 1850. Basically, worked in a grocery store and you know, opened one up. And, and then Molly was born in 1833 on Island McGee, Mary, about 50 miles southeast of the Bushmills. And she and her mother also moved to St. Louis, ironically, in 1850. They were both Presbyterians, and they met and they were engaged very quickly. After their engagement, he joined the 5th U.S. Reserves in St. Louis, and he was sent off to Missouri to, to fight the rebels. So they wrote a series of letters back and forth, and, and, and you can just tell by reading them how it was. Just He wrote on this as basically, just hum me a tune in the evening hours occasionally, and I will fancy I will hear it born in the autumnal breeze. Aww. You know, so very romantic type, this one. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, he was also a hard racist, but that's <laughs> we're not going to read those no. part of the notes, but... But so he goes off to war and he goes off and he starts writing, he's using her as basically his, his feeling of, of goodness and home because he's seeing a lot of bad stuff. He says, all my hopes of heaven and earth depend on you, he writes. So he starts talking a lot about the battles. He's talking about exchanging fire with rebels in the riverbanks, the taunts of secessionist ladies in Lexington he talks about. Talks a lot about his requests. Uh, he, he wrote home a lot and asked for beer in newspapers. <laughs> so there you go. It's really interesting, though. One thing, he, one thing he does is he talks a lot to her about the people around him. And one guy he hates is Don Carlos Buell. For whatever <laughs> reason, he hates him. And he bashes him all throughout these letters, okay? He considers him a traitor. Says he admires Rosecrans. So there you go, okay? Mm. He calls him Rosie. That's how he responds to him in his letters. But he's nice. General Rosecrans. But he calls him, just, you know, just think about it. We call him Rose, but they, 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 these guys, he's just That's a cool. Basically, he finds a portrait of Rosecrans and sends it back to Molly so she can admire the general as he does. Okay. <laughs> wow. So there you go. But he's also somebody who he doesn't like emancipation. He just doesn't like it. He just doesn't. He only sees it as a way to punish the rebels, the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. But he talks a lot about he wants to see more battles. And it just, it's just fun stuff to read. He says he wants to see some action. That's what he says a lot. Um, <laughs> Ooh. Oh, yeah, well, okay, well, <laughs> there you go. But then he, unfortunately, gets sick and he gets injured. So, he, you know, he gets badly wounded at your Battle of Chickamauga, Mary, wow. of all places. He ends up there. He does recover, but he gets captured. He gets sent to Libby Prison, where he continues to write to her. He talks about, in the letters he writes to her in prison are very flirty. They're very teasy. He's got a little, he's got a little, little you know, little spell to him on one oh. side of him, you know. Very lovey-dovey, despite his, his crappy circumstances. I mean, if you're in Libby Prison, yeah, you, you, know, you know, whatever. Basically, he bumps around, ends up in Columbia, South Carolina, and the letters just stop. But what happens is the reason why they stop is he escapes. He escapes. He hikes to Western South Carolina. He finds his way to the Union lines in Tennessee, and he finally does arrive back at their camp. He gets back, and he's with a lot of guys, and he, he escapes. She thinks he's gone. He, he ain't gonna make it. He's up up the spout, right? Mm -hmm. But he shows up, just like a movie shows up. And you know what happens, Mary? Guess what happens then? They get married and live happily ever after. Aww. So this is a good story. So that, that, that is, one's that's kind a of really good. That's one. kind of that's kind of the opposite of the story with Reynolds. Yeah. Right? Where this is one where he goes to fight and he gets caught. Yeah. He goes to camp, writes letters, and then he. She, she, I mean, you got to wonder what she's thinking. This is the oh, worst, God. right? He's the type who just keeps commenting. He just writes her all the time. Then it just yeah. stops because he escapes because he wants to get back to her. That, that was the yeah. incentive for escaping. So it's kind of like one of those made-for-TV lifetime movies. Yeah, I was just Barry. thinking that are a Hallmark Channel movie. You know, but this is another thing. Well, you wonder how many of these stories exist like this, right? Exactly, how, yeah. You know, but, but this is one you read this and it's good. And what's cool about this story, okay, is the newspaper, I think it was the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, got this story because these letters were discovered in 2011. They released them like one at a time for like a week, for like two months. And the, the people were absolutely enthralled by these. Mm -hmm. So they read it and they have to wait till the next week to see what happened next. And they want to see what happened to this couple. And they did it in a way it was very Shakespearean. And they finally found, they lived happily ever after. So it was, it was actually a big story back in the day that's really really they cool because they just didn't release them all. they did a piecemeal so they draw people into it they would find out the story and really became you know fascinated by what happened these people have both been dead for years and years and years and they have the big the big happy ending so a little, little good valentine's very feel cool. it's very positive yeah. 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 yeah very cool very cool yeah. now i'm gonna bring everybody down again. yeah speaking of speaking of <laughs> negative here we go <laughs> okay well 
I chose story of Patrick Claiborne and Sue Tarleton, who Claiborne was engaged to her starting in 1864. And we all know he does not live to see out 1864. You know how that goes. Um, but first of all, I want to mention that Claiborne was very awkward around women. Um, and he also would write them poetry. There was one that Simmons has in Claiborne's biography. And I was going to read it. So here I go. Mary's going to do a poetry reading. <laughs> oh, so this is one that he goes on a walk with a young woman in May of 1854. And he pens this poem to her. Tell me, do your footsteps still roam to yonder shady hill where the sweet may apple flowers neath the pretty dogwood bowers where the mock where the mock words varied song echoes sweet through the woods among first we met near yonder hill and fancy paints that meeting still (laughs) so bad sounds like a bad spice girl song (laughs) yeah it does but anyway So that's who Patrick Claiborne was. A bit of a hopeless romantic, very awkward around women. Sue, his fiancee, was born January 6th, 1840 in Talladega County, Alabama, and she's the daughter of a cotton farmer. They meet at General Hardy's wedding in January of 1864, and Claiborne had taken two weeks leave for this wedding. This is the first time he's ever taken leave since he's been in the army. And knowing Claiborne, it was probably reluctantly. It was probably at Hardy's insistence, like, no, dude, you're coming to be my best man and you need a break. Because keep in mind, January 1864, they've been through the battles for Chattanooga, and all that. So it's been a pretty rough go for them. Sue stands across from Claiborne at Hardy's wedding. And Simmons in his biography of Claiborne says he was instantly and hopelessly smitten with her. And keep in mind, they're both very shy. But Claiborne still asks at the end of the night if he could call upon her and she shyly accepts. Just as his two weeks are nearly up, they've been spending a lot of time together and Claiborne asks Sue to marry him. She doesn't give him an immediate answer. She just gives him permission to write her, which is like, ooh, scan, like, you know, is that scandalous? It's like, no, I'm not gonna, I can't say yes or no, but you can write me letters. Claiborne confessed to a friend in a letter that he had fallen in instantly in love with Miss Sue on first sight. Eventually, once he gets back to camp, the men notice a change in him. So I don't know if Claiborne was a real grumpy bastard or just really quiet or whatever, but apparently there's a huge change to the point that rumors start floating around camp that he had lost his heart with a young lady in Alabama. Irving Buck, one of his aide-de-camps, described him as being in a heavenly mood. So it sounds like Claiborne was a bit of a grumpy bastard at times. Kind of like me. Sounds like it. No, no one's that bad. Claiborne's, you fucker. maybe Claiborne's my spirit animal so the staff noticed a huge difference in his behavior and also he had gone three keep in mind so before he takes this two-week leave of absence he had gone for three years without one he requests another soon after getting back because he wants to go and visit Sue again he and Sue are exchanging letters until he takes another leave in February of 1864 and this is what he writes after keeping me in cruel suspense for six weeks she has at length consented to be mine. That's what he wrote. And we are engaged. And that's what he writes to one of his friends. Oh, it took her so long. Six weeks. Can you imagine waiting six weeks for an answer like that? Tries you to move on. <laughs> and Claiborne also Tries you to go, go him in a Butterfield, jump the lines and go and off one of the barns. Bang barn. <laughs> I need to go to the bang barn. <laughs> Claiborne also wrote the, that he had the feelings of an accepted lover when the fair one has relented, when the heartless little conqueror shows that she is all heart by descending from her triumphal car, lifting her wounded captive from the mud and placing him palpitating with a thousand new emotions by her side. Wow. Hey, if the army thing didn't work out for him, if he hadn't been killed, he could have had a career at Hallmark. He could have. He absolutely could have. I mean, you know. Like, this is the, the, the cheesy poetry letter romantic writer of the Civil War is Patrick Claiborne. So Simmons describes Claiborne as a genuine romantic, which I would have to agree with. The letters from her became the best part of his day. He did complain, though, that she wrote too large and left large spaces between the lines. But Simmons writes that one suspects that even had she written in tiny script, they still would not have been long enough to satisfy him. That's, that's an interesting one. You write too, you write too big and you leave too many gaps. And just, that's, that's like the, those grammar people but even yeah. back then. Yeah, he's like, you know, you write too big, write, write smaller and write me more. And none of their letters are around at all. One of his other aides did get to see some of the letters on occasion that Claiborne was writing to Sue. 
but Claiborne kept the ones that she wrote him, never showed anybody about them. And we have no idea where they are today. And the one thing that it was his aide, um, Mangum said of these, that he was surprised by the depth of Claiborne's feelings. So that tells me that Claiborne was a man who was probably pretty quiet, didn't really express his feelings too much, very much like a typical soldier, like you would expect Claiborne to be. Magnum also wrote that Claiborne was devoid of all approach to sentimentality and they were full of the most sweet and tender passion. So again, we're seeing, it's kind of like back to Reynolds, what, what Ellie says of getting to talk to Kate, that she gets to know another side of her brother. Well, here's Mangum who's serving alongside Claiborne and he's seeing another side to Claiborne that nobody else has ever seen before that clearly Sue has brought out in him, which is, which is really an interesting part of the story. So in September of 1864, Sue suffers from what's called neuralgia, which is a very, it's just kind of a catch-all for, I don't know, whatever the fuck kind of ailments people had back then. But anyway, she was not able to write him and he was not doing well with that. Apparently his mood completely dipped. Claiborne goes to apply for furlough so that he can go see Sue and see how she is as well as so that they can get married. And this is around the time of the Battle of Atlanta. And much like Sherman to McPherson, Hood says no to Claiborne. No, you can't go see her. Like, I, I need you right now. Even though the, the campaign is over, like the Battle for Atlanta has happened. So it's kind of quiet. Hood is like, nope, you need to be here. Um, and Sue gets very upset about this, saying to her friend, I don't know how I am to get through it. And then she says, I believe I've had a regular fit of the blues. So she's very, very upset by this too. And I'm sure Claiborne was as well. Like, can you imagine going to Hood, like the Battle of Atlanta is over, you've given it everything you've done, like the entire Atlanta campaign. And Hood's like, nope, you need to stay. Johnson has still been in charge. Johnson probably would have let him go. You never know. I mean, maybe it's just tough to say, but you, you can, you know, you again a bitch is a lot of stories just like this too a lot of people did let people go home i mean for different reasons yep. you know he should have said his mother was sick then he could have gone like elijah hunt Rhodes. you know was that the truth was elijah hunt Rhodes? yeah the general said you've been a good boy elijah you can go home for two weeks <laughs> well i think I after that was all claybert had been atlanta you'd think claybert had been a good boy too yeah exactly, exactly. Saw, like basically saving them so as we all know claiborne is killed at the battle of franklin and sue learns of the death five days later So she will wear mourning every day for a year. Um, But in 1867, she will marry a Confederate army captain um, named Hugh Cole. But she unfortunately passes away a year later. Very, another one whose life who moved on. She, she, her love of her life, she, you know, is killed and she moves on pretty quickly. But you got to wonder if she's moving on or if she's just doing like she's just going through the motions, right? Like she ends up dying a year later. So who knows if that was you know, kind of the broken heart thing contributed that because she seemed at first, she doesn't seem like she's too into Claiborne because he comes on pretty strongly. Like this is a man who's really shy around women. But then when he meets the love of his life, he's like, Oh yeah, like I want to get married to you. And I've known you for like two fucking weeks. Right. But then she, and then she ends up passing away, you know, a year later after she marries this Hugh Cole guy. So I thought their story was really an interesting one too, just because they're, but we don't know the letters, but what we learn from this story of Claiborne is a side that maybe had he not met Sue, nobody would have known about, you know, but here's Mangum able to say like, this was a guy who was very passionate and very sweet and very much had a lot of emotions, which I'm guessing Claiborne didn't, wasn't a very well, emotion driven guy, like outwardly to his soldiers. But I mean, I mean why well, you, you give, right? her, give her credit, right? And a lot, I mean, it, it had to have been difficult, right? Mm-hmm. To, you know, to, to, to be with some of these people. I mean, you look back yeah. at the, one of these guys from around these parts of oh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, Mary, yeah. you, you know, he was I mean, old Fanny. She was dating the whole football team at Bowdoin College, you know? So, <laughs> you know, she was, she was dating him and she was dating his, I think it was his roommate. Right. And so yeah. it goes to show that, you know, it's, it's they're different people and they're just different. Well, they different are. They're complete, like, like general Meade was a completely different person with his wife than what he was with his men. Like with his men, he's got a bad temper and stuff. Apparently with his wife, he was, uh, sounds a lot like Claiborne, like, very tender, very romantic. You know, um, I've read some of the letters that he wrote her and it was, it's like, how is this George Gordon made this writing this stuff? But it's interesting when you look at this, when you look at Claiborne or John Reynolds and even the couple that you talked about, you're seeing another side to these men that we might not have seen otherwise, which is really, really cool. It's the human yeah, side. I, I wanted to pick somebody who no one ever heard of. It wasn't, you know. No, I thought your story is awesome. One of the things Claiborne or, or Reynolds, everyone looks the big name. It's always fun. Like you yeah. said, it's all about personifying people, you yeah. know? Well, I'll tell you, Mary, you know, we've been hearing some lovely flowery stories here. Okay. But we got ourselves thinking, what if some of our generals, okay, were around today? 
And they were hitting some of these local dating sites. These pro- they need to set up a dating profile, okay? How would it read, okay? So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to take turns. I'm going to read you this general's profile, okay? I want you to tell me, A, who the general is, or who the Civil War personality is, and B, if you think this profile might actually just work, all right? So here we go. You ready? <clears throat> yeah. I was born in a city that never sleeps, and neither do I. I'm a lawyer who has had his heart broken, but looking for love yet again. If love is a crime, then I am guilty forever, and this time I won't be temporarily insane. I enjoy drinking whiskey with the boys and talking and taking long, unauthorized walks to the peach orchard with that special someone to help compliment my salient. So if you're interested in becoming my lady of Spain, shake a leg and come hang with this excelsior kind of gentleman. <laughs> talking about Dan Sickles. (laughs) Correct. I I think the right lady might respond. You think so, huh? Okay. So you think think old old Uncle Dan might find himself some love again? I think he might find someone, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully the the lucky lady doesn't meet somebody that takes her off to the bang barn on a Saturday afternoon. (laughs) Maybe that's that's, looking for love in all the wrong places. Maybe that's where he's going. (laughs) All right, so let's see what you got. All right. I was born in New England and I'm West Point educated. <laughs> Do you wonder who this is? I, okay, also, I also know math and I taught it for a while at West Point. So yeah. I'm good with numbers. I also almost joined the clergy, but when Beauregard fired up on Fort Sumter, I knew my calling was to be a soldier and that it was a sign from God. As for what I like to do, I would much prefer going to a coffee shop because I can't stand drunkenness and loud and obnoxious people. I enjoy reading too, mainly the Bible. I even run a Bible study at camp and I would be happy to talk about the scriptures anytime over coffee because I don't drink. I do enjoy running and moving quickly, but not as much as what my friends say. Reports of that are very, very exaggerated. Besides drunkenness and loud, obnoxious people, I can't stand swearing. You won't ever hear me swear at all. I do have great command of the English language, but don't ask me to speak in German. That never has gone very well for me at all. Franz Siegel? (laughs) Obviously, it's Oliver Otis Howard. Howard. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what kind of of woman he's looking for. We're talking about Bible study and not drink. I mean, well, he's going to post it on what's that Christian dating website? Christian Mingle. Oh, Christian (laughs) Mingle.com. Do you know someone signed me up for that one time as a joke and I tried to get emails? (laughs) like 10 years ago oh my god yeah well i think that would work for the right kind of right kind of person for someone like howard that's probably who he's looking for so he's fishing in the right pond yeah i think that i i think he's 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 using the right base he's saying like no bars no drinking okay i think that would work then i think that's a good one i think it's good all right all right my next one okay ladies are you the type of woman who loves a laid-back but socially refined country boy My heart is full after it was broken when my first love ran away with my college roommate. But thanks to the support of my friends, that burning itch in my loins of love has gone away and melted away. I'm the bashful type who turns as red as my shirt after a mere wink and loves to disappear for days at the time, at a time when the going gets rough. But I always seem to show up to save the day right in the nick of time. So hit me up if you're interested Thanks to the invention of antibiotics, our love will be the only thing that burns. Talking about AP Hill. <laughs> That's great. Would it work? Yeah. I mean, they might be a little bit turned off by the antibiotic thing. Like, I I don't know. If I read some dating profile and antibiotics were mentioned, I might nope the fuck away from that one. He's very open, though. He's open. He's, he's at least, right yeah, I guess there. he's open. I guess, yeah, then, yeah. No, I wouldn't. So you don't Nothing. think that you you you, if you would if if you were some kind of dating coach you wouldn't advise EP Hill to go with that you think you should I would say up? like don't put the antibiotics in there. <laughs> okay. That's going to raise more questions and red flags as well. Not just red plaid shirt, red All flags. Right, okay. All right. Well, okay. Well, AP will take <laughs> under advisement then. That's a, that's why we're doing this. We're we're, we're helping these it people. It was up. really good though. I did like that. Okay. So my next one. I was born in Virginia. An attendant West Point. 
and I fought in Mexico. I taught at Virginia Military Institute after that. My students seemed very, very indifferent to me, but I like to think they liked me because I'm a little bit eccentric and I'm not like the other professors there. You've no doubt heard those rumors that I'm very, very different or even a little weird. Like I said, I prefer the term eccentric and unique. While I am stern with my men, I can assure you that outside of that, I'm very different and very, very easygoing. I enjoy spending my time reading the scriptures, especially on Sundays, and usually don't do anything else on Sundays, but read the scriptures. So if you're down with that, why don't you check me out? Now, things I like. Lemons, horseback riding on Little Sorrel. Lemons, reading the Bible. Lemons, the Bible. Lemons. What do I dislike? Trees. Hill. Not hills. Hill. Trees. Going for walks in the evenings. I much prefer when it's daylight to go for walks because bad things can happen when it's at dusk. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but I do like lemons. Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one right there. Did you mention lemons? Um, yeah, good old Stonewall. Good old TJ. Yep. Very good. Very well played. I, I, I think that would definitely work. I wasn't too sure about the whole walking in the woods at night, the whole kidnapping thing you were alluding to, you know, on a dating profile. But I think overall, I think it would work. I think that's He's a pretty saying good no to walking in the woods at dusk. <laughs> bad things can happen exactly i'm like okay sure. sign me up we're gonna go in the woods and bad things are gonna happen i'm in <laughs> all right i got one more for you okay yeah see if you can figure this one out and again tell me if it would work okay ladies are you looking for a man with a slow hand if so this daddy mac is waiting forever to move on you i was born <laughs> in the city of brotherly love and despite my small stature my heart is full like a young Napoleon. Before we get together, I'll take months to prepare to make you happy to ensure our relationship lasts much longer than just seven days. My past relationships all tell me that I performed splendidly and it was a masterful piece of art. Hopefully with you, I trust that our days will do us both justice. McClellan. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, that'll work. I mean, he's a little bit overconfident, but yeah, as long as he can keep that up. I mean, he's got a lot to live up to with that one. Well, I think I think he's definitely setting the stage for greatness with that one. He is. He, is. Yep. he definitely, is. He definitely it, is. But again, it goes back to under-promise, over-deliver. He might be over-delivering and under-promising. He might be, but you know what, though? If it doesn't work out, he'll just find someone to blame. Yep. Or so over-promising, under-delivering. Oh. I got that totally fucked up. I don't know. A masterful piece of ours. Yeah. Okay. I have one more for you too. All right. I was born. <laughs> I don't know why we're laughing so much right now. So stupid. I was born. <laughs> Jesus. I was born in Ohio and attended West Point. I would have graduated higher in my class, but hey, do you mean to tell me that a clean uniform and polished buttons makes a good soldier? Fuck that noise. Let's just say I know how to have a good time. And when it comes to jewelry, I'm your guy. I'll be able to tell you if something is real gold or not. See my time in California for what happened there with that. I enjoy lighting fires. Wink, wink. But despite what you have heard, only 30% of Atlanta burned. Fuck hood. But I digress. I also enjoy long walks, especially to the sea. And I have plenty of stamina for something like that, among other things. Hey. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I prefer not to read maps and just wander. I usually end up in the right spot, if you know what I mean. And despite what you may have heard. Fuck Claiborne. My dislikes. Ohio. Full frontal attacks. Ohio. Claiborne. Ohio. Newspapers. Politics. Ohio. The song that must not be named that they wrote about me when I went on my little march. Ohio. Oh, I do enjoy going to the theater as well. So anyway, if you're looking for a good time with a spicy redhead, give me a call. It's either Ron Howard or William Sherman, one of the two. <laughs> wow. William Sherman. Yep. It's confident. It's to the point. Don't think he likes Ohio. No, he doesn't. And I think I, th I think overall I think it's I think that would, I think that would work out for him. Yeah. I think I think that would be pretty good. I think yeah. I think all all these little ones we did, I think, um, you know, probably tell the story that they're all glad they lived back then and not now. Yeah. <laughs> Realistically. Yep realistically so i thought that was a good one i thought i thought that i thought that was good i think i think i'll, I'll thank I'll, you i'll give i'll give old uncle blingy because he has access to the gold too so he's got the good stuff yeah yeah a little foraging among friends from time yeah. to time a little Lighting burning fires yeah exactly exactly well i could i, I should have thrown a howling joke in there too if you want a good cool, you want a howl give me a call jeez 
(laughs) I think the overall picture with this is when you look back in the 1860s, the people are just like they are today. They, you know, you know, they love, they, they learn, they yearn, you know, they, 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 they want what they want. Um, And I I think it's one of those stories that, um, that continues on. And what's good about Valentine's day is it's a holiday that gets teased because it's, it's a very marketable, it's all marketing back then they knew it, but you know what though, it comes around every year and everyone buys their cards, they buy their flowers, they buy their candy. And nine months later is November, and it's the busiest birth month of the year. And I was born in November, and I hate thinking about that around this time of year. But you know what, though? It's a holiday that, again, it's, it's part of, this, of American culture that goes yep. way back. And when you think about these soldiers in their camps and these families back home, it's these little things that kept them going. It's these little things that kept them looking forward to that next day, let them keep going. So it's tough to rip on Valentine's Day, especially oh, yeah. when you look back at the year that they were all fighting in. Exactly. Yeah. So what's coming up? So this episode, well, you're listening to it Saturday morning. We have our usual roundtable at 10 o'clock. So we'll hope you, hopefully you will join us for that. We usually get a pretty good crowd out for it. The uh, What we're now calling the Civil War Breakfast Club is those who are joining us, those Facebook Lives. And I think I said roundtable instead of Facebook Live because our next roundtable is on Wednesday, February the 17th from 6 till 7.30ish, which um, if you've attended our roundtables before, you'll be getting in the Zoom invite from me probably um, probably Saturday afternoon or Sunday sometime. If you've never been a part of our roundtables, they are, they are always a lot of fun. We just have kind of a free-flowing discussion with everybody about the Civil War. Basically do it like to give everybody, like everybody can come on and just talk. Uh, Darren and I don't do a lot of talking when we're on there because we just want to hear what other people have to say and give them a chance to, to have a voice. So if you haven't been part of it before, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. Send us an email and we will be sure to send you an invite. Next episode, we will be talking about Forts Henry and Forts Donaldson. So we are back in the yeah. Western Theater again. And Your then first we... battle talk in a while too, Yeah. Mary. And then I think the week after that is the Mer- Sherman's Meridian campaign. A lot of good stuff coming. So I'm, look, I'm definitely looking forward to yep. that. So we've had some fun. The last couple of weeks, we've had some fun. We talked about Valentine's Day today. We talked to people in the past. We talked about booth. We talked about some secession stuff last week. So now we get back into the meat and potatoes of this old breakfast club. Then we're going to talk about some yep. battle stuff. So we will look, definitely look forward to that. So yep, for sure. again, roundtable are live on Saturday. So if you're listening to this, hopefully you'll listen to this before the live. If not, then just listen to it. And then, of course, the roundtable. And then, to your point, the book club coming up down the road. Yes, the book club as well the meeting for that will be march 31st that will be upon us before we know it so yeah if you haven't signed up for a book club yet and would like to info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com we'll get you signed up for it we're reading four books this year first one's black iron mercy it's a really awesome historical novel about uh, a man who was in the iron brigade exactly so i think i think we can successfully tie a pink bow around the cupid's arrow on this one Mary. yeah and uh, we can call it a day so um, anyway, as always, it's a pleasure. Looking forward to hearing this uh, on Saturday. Yeah. Looking forward to live and all the good stuff we have coming down the road. So we are half a year officially completed yeah. our 26th episode. Holy crap. I've, I've had to talk to you for 26 straight weeks. You have. What a, what a, what a thing. You're no such one, no a trooper week. No one's, no one's killed each other yet. So that's a, a good trooper, thing. trooper, my God. I Put do, up with me for that long, I fucker. Do I, can, I do what I can. <laughs> anyway, everybody, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you have a great Valentine's Day. This will drop the day before Valentine's Day. So um, have a good one. Stay safe. Stay out of trouble. And we will look forward to talking to you, as we always say, on the other side. Yes. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. And have a great day. And we will see you all again soon. Peace out. Bye.